lasso. So now we come into very familiar territory. And right now, I have nothing to add that I think I've not already expressed as clearly as I possibly can about this third and kind of marathon phase of mindfulness of breathing when you're up at the nostrils, cruising altitude. So before we jump in, is, is from any of you, is there anything unclear about this phase of mindfulness of breathing, which is really the classic one, or shall we just jump right in? Mindfulness of breathing at the nostrils. Any question about that? Okay, go ahead, James. Thank you, Alma. I was just wondering, how small of an area should we be shooting for here? Like a quarter of a nostril, tenth of a nostril? <laughs> About 17 percent. Um, it's actually not that important. Not that imp it's not that important. Whether it's you're picking up both nostrils, or some are going right into the middle, you know, right, right in the very oh, it's a septum, I think it's called. I'm not quite sure, but right in the middle there. Um, it shouldn't be a matter of concern. Number one, I've never seen it even addressed in any of the classic treatises, nor in terms of the instruction I've received. And so it's just basically maintaining that thread in the target area. So anything, if, so if you have a you know, bullseye and then consecutive rings, as long as it's still within the target, and you are maintaining the contact with the sensations of the breath, it's easy to just kind of slip over to the background radiation. That's what I call it. The sensations are already there. And that would be like just occurred to me now, as a matter of fact, that would be like in the practice of settling the mind, focusing just on the space of the mind, and then say, never mind all the stuff that's coming and going. It's easier just to focus on space. It is, but then you're going to have nothing to sharpen your knife on in terms of enhancing the vividness, and that you do get that in settling the mind when you attend to subtler and briefer mental events. It gets very, very sharp. And likewise, when your whole system is calming down, really calming down, and you hardly need to breathe. Well, the background radiation is the same. So that's not going to really help you. It's not going to give you a finer and finer whetstone, whereas those subtler and subtler sensations, they will. Okay? Good. Anything else about this practice? Oh, all the trees have been cut down. <laughs> Good. All right, let's just jump in right then. As you let your awareness descend right down to the ground and then fill the space of the body, see if you can find that delicate balance, especially in the sitting position, of letting your whole posture be deeply relaxed and yet still adopting a posture of vigilance, quite straight, sitting at attention and maintaining that balance with stillness. In the supine position, of course, the vigilance is psychological. But first of all, settle your body in its natural state. 
then as you settle your respiration in its natural rhythm, this calls for an even subtler balance, a light touch. of abstaining from the impulse to push the breath out or to keep it out or to pull it in or to hold it. In all four phases of the in-breath, the turnaround, the out-breath, the turnaround, closely attend to the sensations of the breath throughout the body but surrender all control and let the body breathe without intervention. then even though a mere decision or an intention will not simply stop rumination, it can be helpful to, to deliberately give yourself the permission, the freedom, for this little while to release all concerns about the future and the past, all hopes and fears. Allow yourself the freedom of coming to rest in stillness in the present moment. Letting your awareness illuminate the sensations of the breath throughout the body.
now in order to synergistically cultivate relaxation, stability, and vividness of your attention. Elevate and more narrowly focus your attention on the tactile sensations of the breath at the nostrils. Now and again, check up in your body to see that your eyes are soft and unfocused, your forehead spacious, an openness between the eyebrows, a softness in the face at large. Of course, monitor for laxity and excitation, apply the remedies. And let's continue practicing now in silence.
So here's a question from Quinn. Do those afflicted by neurological degenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's, suffer in their dreams? In other words, in what way is mind and the substrate limited by the meat, the suit it wears? Good question. I mean, the biological, what one can call the biological substrate, independence upon which the psyche arises, all aspects of the psyche arise independence upon. Could shamatha be a means for transcending these terrible diseases, and how might neurological disorder inhibit the attainment of shamatha? So the, the first question, I really don't know. Uh, I'm anything but a specialist um, in terms of how, they're, how they suffer in their dreams. I really don't know. Uh, and knowing one person who is not Alzheimer's, but very elderly and a lot of cognitive deterioration or degeneration. Uh, in this one case, I'll keep it anonymous, really no suffering at all. Very happy, very relaxed, very peaceful. The mind just isn't clear and a lot of memory loss for, for short term and I think but as, so, as so common, long term memory is quite good, short term memory really poor, you know, even five minutes. Um, but in this particular case, really no suffering, just having a very pleasant cruise to the end of life. So nothing there. And, and as in the waking state, then I would imagine also in the dream state, no problem. Really quite happy. Of course, for those around this person, uh, especially the person's spouse, very difficult, very difficult. So much more suffering for the spouse who has a clear mind than for the other spouse who's suffering from, looks like uh, deteriorating sen uh, senile dementia. But beyond that, I really don't know. So one would have to ask somebody who actually knows about those things. I'm not one of them. Um, the mind itself, so in what way is the mind and the substrate limited by the, well, so let's just say the brain. The mind is very limited by the brain. And that is damage, um, drugs, drugs, if, one, if, you, if you put some really heavy-duty drug, um, you know, and, and slip it to them. That could, they could damage the brain. It could give rise to mental, mental disorders and so forth. So insofar as the one is operating out of the psyche, then, I mean, the Buddha, in a way, implicitly, one doesn't need to read very much in, Buddha as still an ascetic, having let his body deteriorate. I mean, he was so intense in terms of fasting and all of that, and really let his vitality go down. He was really weak and emaciated. And he found, and here was, you know, he was a very accomplished meditator. He had already achieved shamatha and all of the sages, but then he, he let them slack off as he went to, as he found that that was not, how do you say, liberation in and of itself. It seems he set them aside. And then he went and did all these other explorations in various types of asceticism, fasting, and so forth. So it seems that for, for, that, for that time, he really did not have access to those jhana states that he had accessed earlier. But what he did find as having let his body so deteriorate at the ripe old age of 34 or 35, uh, that his mind was weak. His mind was weak. And so therefore, he saw, well, this isn't working. So I've tried luxury, I've tried what extreme, I've tried this extreme. He got some good curd and some rice, got his health back, and then swiftly achieved enlightenment. So if that's going to be true for such a highly accomplished bodhisattva, 
that if you let your body deteriorate, it's going to really have an impact on your mind. And the mind is the one you're meditating with until you, until you are able to dissolve it into the substrate. Now, if one is seeking to develop shamatha, having already been brain damaged or suffering from some neurological disorder of some sort or some severe like schizophrenia or other types of psychosis, uh, if one is trying, going to try to develop shamatha within that context, I think it would be enormously difficult, probably impossible in most cases. So what about, and I'm being rather speculative here, but what about if you have chief shamatha already? Now this relates back to, uh, I, think, I think it was Gudo's question. I know it was Gudo's question. And that is, what might be the impact of meditating for years or decades prior to, correct? Prior to the onset, prior to the onset of senile dementia, Alzheimer's, and so forth. And as I mentioned before, I think it's just an enormously important uh, area of research. And I think it probably will happen. There, there are enough people in the mainstream science and neuroscience psychology now that either are meditating or they recognize it definitely has benefits. We have so many scientific studies showing this now. And they're by very, very good scientists over the last 10 years or so. Uh, that hopefully, if the money is there, because it would be expensive, uh, because this would have to be a study that went on for some decades. So people start meditating at age you know, 40, 50, whatever, f or younger. And then you see when they get into their 60s, 70s, 80s, so now you have to do a statistical analysis. Was that did have an impact on cognitive deterioration, the onset of Alzheimer's, and so forth? Um, my hunch would be, and so there it is, the, the, the research has to be done, really should be done. It would be expensive, but not like a space shuttle or trying to establish a colony on Mars, um, and I think much more beneficial. Uh, so I suspect it will. I think there's, there's so many people of my generation, the baby boomer generation, who've you know, kind of tapped into meditation and yoga and that kind of thing. The money should be there. But it's, so there it is. The research has to be done, and the research should show some really definitive results. If I should give a guess or a hunch, my working hypothesis, if I were conducting the research like that, uh, would be that one would see significant benefit, that is, m much fewer cases of memory loss, lack of clarity of thinking, dementia, Alzheimer's. Because even though Alzheimer's is genetic, I'm quite sure, and I'm absolutely no, I'm, I'm reading from newspapers here, so I have no, no inside knowledge, I'm not trained, but I'm quite, I'm, I'm just about positive strong genetic influences on Alzheimer's. But as I know from some friends of mine who are really experts, uh, there is this issue of, uh, what's it called? Ep epigenetics, epigenetics. And that's where you, through your behavior, your environment, or what have you, you're able to influence, by these, by these factors you can actually can control to some extent, influence the chemical environment of the gene. You can't change your gene itself, but you can change the chemical environment of the gene, and that may influence whether or not that particular gene that's associated with Alzheimer's, dementia, what have you, whether that fires. So I think I gave the example earlier, you may have been exposed to, to TB and never get it. You may have the gene for Alzheimer's, for ADHD, or other types of problems, and never get it, because you've shifted the chemical environment so you're no longer so vulnerable. So I think this is, this is awfully important if you, so there it is, and let alone achieving shamatha, because hey, we don't have a big database. I, don't, we don't think, I think we have a zero database of scientific studies conducted on people who, ha, who have achieved shamatha. So shall I, shall I sing my song again? We need contemplative observatories to get the database up. Right? That was a short one. Um, if one had already achieved shamatha, 
and one suffered an accident, an injury. Would this influence your brain? Uh, of course, that, that's, sorry, wrong choice of words. Would this, would this influence your mind, your psyche that arises independence upon the brain? Yes, yes it would. Might you still be able to access the substrate consciousness? Which then, and could your experience of the substrate consciousness be free of, independent of, brain activity? I suspect so. I suspect so. Um, and here's an area. It's a legitimate area, and there's some good scientists doing it. I've already mentioned you know, the research on reincarnation, so there it is. And what I would suggest, if one could just look at the data and look at the analysis, and then if the analysis is poor, show how it's poor. If the data collection is poor, good, show how it's poor. If it's poor, it's poor, then it's crummy science. I would just want, hey, let's have a fair, fair hearing. Now, another area, correlated area, and they're doing this also at the Division of Perceptual Studies at the University of Virginia. And I know the man, uh, one of the men who, who's doing this, is Bruce Grayson. Uh, Tony Karam and I invited him down to Mexico several years back at a one-day conference we had. He's one sharp cookie, a very eloquent speaker, but very sober, very sober, very methodical. And when he was showing evidence for out-of-body experience, near-death experience. Uh, there was just no showbiz about it. There was, no, there was just nothing hand-wavy about it. It's just, here's the data, here's the data, check it out, you know? But insofar as people are still having experiences when the brain is dead, when the brain is not functioning, uh, you've, you've experienced clinical death, and then you're brought back, uh, that would suggest that now you've not been brain damaged, you've been brain killed for a while, and yet people, evidence suggesting, people still being able to tap into now another mode of intelligence that's not dependent upon brain, including language recognition. Some very strange stuff. So I've written about it a little bit in my book, Mind and the Balance. Refer to it again in, in uh, Meditations of a Buddhist Skeptic. But there's a big tome. It should be, it's called Irreducible Mind. Quite sure it's called Irreducible Mind. It's a big fat book. And it's research, all kinds of research. You need, have to be very patient because it's a big book with lots of data. But it's a compendium of the research being, having been conducted at the University of Virginia there. And it's very provocative reading. And it's good enough, that is, the research is good enough that in England, I know there's some researchers there, that has been in Scotland, a University of Edinburgh, uh, Virginia, of course. There's Dean Radin, who's not in, uh, associated with a, an academic institution but with the Institute of Noetic Sciences. He's a full-fledged neuroscientist. He's studying these kind of things. So there are a few people studying it. Also, one Dutch, now I don't know exactly, I think he's an MD. Well, I'm um, I should remember. Can't quite pull the name out. It's easy, but easy to find. A lot of research. Matthew Ricard knows his work also. Uh, he's Dutch, and he's done research on near-death experience. So it's quite interesting. So that, all of that would be suggestive that you know, it would be possible to function even with brain damaged. So, and the final point, yeah, could shamatha be a means for transcending these terrible diseases to be researched? And how might neurobiological disorders inhibit the attainment of shamatha? If you've not achieved it, it could inhibit it severely. Yeah, severely, yeah. Good, so now let's just go to left and right. If there are any questions, observations, insights? Uh, sure, we'll start from the right today with Regina. Aware of awareness, it is applying a discerning intelligence to realize creating, to release creating thoughts until you lose cognitive fusion with your own identity. 
So basically, in order for uh, anything to exist, you need a thought. Are uh, we uh, basically... I, I just missed that because I need to understand everything you're okay. saying. In, say, just say that last sentence again. So basically, in order to, to, for anything to exist, you need a thought. Um, who needs a thought? I mean, there's, One needs there's a the, thought. There's One the moon out there. There's, the, there's a moon about 237,000 miles away. Does that need a thought? If I don't think about it, it's not there. If you don't think about it, the moon vanishes? No, it's still there. So it does exist even if you don't think about yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to need a lot of that. Uh, are we basically a creation of our own minds? And why are we so afraid of uh, relaxing and letting all attachments go? Is it because it is a fundamental fear of ceasing to exist as human or not belonging to the former realm or just to be a continuum consciousness or why is that, you know, mm -hmm. incredible fear and... Yeah. Uh, would you like this in one volume or a series of volumes? <laughs> these, are, these are rather rather large issues. I mean, they're very good issues. They're very large. Let's just, uh, and of course, I will not be able to do them justice, so I'll confess that right off the beginning, from the beginning. But let's just go back to the first one. So the issue of thought. I mean, we are going very deep waters, and since as it came up, this is clearly theory, but it does impinge upon. Since practice is embedded in a worldview, no matter what, practice you're doing, you do have a way of viewing reality. All of us do. And the way we view reality does have an impact on the practices, even mindfulness of breathing. Right? And then there are also our values, our priorities and so forth, motivation, they have an impact. And then the way we're leading our lives, whether in retreat or in our active lives. So all of these are intertwined. So it's, it's a mistake, and you, you, you've not suggested this mistake, and I'm not suggesting anybody else is, I'm just pointing out, a mistake to think that somehow theory and practice are unrelated. Um, I've read a few people, and I think it's a minority, but few people who are just drawn to the, the Buddhist practices, whether it's just sitting and sasen, as in Soto Zen, or just mindfulness or whatever, and they say, now just leave out all the, and they would use words like claptrap and mumbo jumbo and that kind of stuff, as if all the theory is just, well, it's irrelevant. It's just irrelevant. All that Buddhist theory, you know, and then it's just irrelevant. And it, I, I do agree that it's irrelevant for them because they don't see its relevance. <laughs> and so I don't debate with them. But could those theories be very relevant and tremendously enrich and inspire and inform the practices? Yeah. Just think about a person getting a PhD in neuroscience and never learning any theory of neuroscience, just learning how to, to operate the fMRI and just how to put on the EEG and how to collect the data and so forth and even how to analyze the data, but really no understanding of the, the nature of the, of the brain in terms of modern neuroscientific theory about brain. That would be very impoverished. You'd be basically just a lab technician. Yeah, so, so I think it's a parallel there, right? So let's, let's touch lightly on something that needs much deeper consideration. But when you said something doesn't exist without there being a thought, well, clearly, I know you don't believe it, that the moon just kind of goes poof into nothing when you stop thinking about it. Um, I'd be so disappointed. I'm looking for the full moon. Oh, Regina, please stop think start thinking about it. Oh, there we are again. <laughs> Thanks. Don't fall asleep now because the moon will disappear. You know? uh, and of course you didn't think that. I know that. Um, but we have on the one and so on the one hand, we have this vitruism that, you know, of course it's there. 
uh, and it influences things like the tides and a lot of things on our planet. On the one hand, on the other hand, we have this statement that I know you've heard from Madhyamaka, Middle Way View, that all phenomena arise independent upon conceptual designation. Now, conceptual de designation is thinking about something, designating it, giving it a label. Um, and they will often say, phenomena arise independence upon conceptual designation and verbal designation or naming. And independence upon that, they come into existence, which could imply, well, then, if we got all the human beings on the planet, let's have just a great big moment, everybody. Okay, everybody stop thinking about the moon, all of us, all at once. Oh. You know, it's still there. Well, I will continue. I will continue. So clearly, it's not you stopping thinking about it. That doesn't do it. It's clearly not all of us. What about the animals? You know, they're not going to miss the human senses. And so it's not that. So what is being get at, gotten at here? Because these are brilliant people coming up with these ideas, and, they're not, and brilliant means they're not silly, right? And so comes back to this issue that runs right through quantum mechanics, and, and there have been very, very high-level dialogues. This is not some new age, you know, let's think really fluffy thoughts. But people like Anton Seilinger, George, uh, David Finkelstein, oh, and some other, I mean, some Nobel, Nobel laureates, uh, Stephen Chu, and I've heard all of these people speak. They're really the top brass in modern physics today, dialoguing with the Dalai Lama, about, among other things, about Madhyamaka philosophy. And nobody's laughing, you know, nobody's laughing. So very briefly put, the moon that we see, it's arising, the moon that we see, it's a right that we see, that we perceive, that we measure, whether with your eyes or whether some tech, instrument of technology, that's a moon rising relative to your system measurement, whether it's looking at it with your eyes or measuring it with some type of very sophisticated technological device. And then the moon rises relative to that, and then you you have a sense of the moon. Now, we not, not only take, take measurements, but we also think about the moon. We make sense of the data, right? That when we're looking up in the sky, we don't just see, oh, isn't that a pretty white circle, and then move on. You know, we are, it's a kind of smudgy. It could have been whiter, you know? But no, then we, then we consider, we think about, and then we have theories about the nature of the moon. And so these theories may be correct relative to a mode of observation. And so that moon does exist, but the moon that we conceive of, based upon the measurements that we take, does not exist independently of our conceptions and the measurements that we take. Now, if some people from outer space came along, who are made of a gelatinous cloud, and they travel with no spaceships, just because they travel in this gelatinous cloud of X matter that can travel faster than the speed of light, and they should look at the moon, then if they could see it at all, that would arise for them, and it would very likely be very different from, from us, because they don't have a visual cortex like us. And so this is just suggesting that the epistemology and ontology are always inter intertwined. Whatever you say about reality, subjective or objective, it's always related to, related to your mode of making measurements, observations, or experimentation, and your way of making sense of the data. In other words, it's basically appearances and making objects independently of appearances and independently of the cognitive process of making objects or making subjects. I'm over here. I'm over here. This is my mind. Independently of that, no, there's no moon. Because the word that moon doesn't mean anything. So, and it's not that it's out there and you don't know about it. It's just that there's, it makes no sense at all 
to speak about what's out there, independent of measurement and independent of conceptual designation. It makes no sense. Because whatever you say is neither true nor false. Because as soon as you try to put it to the test, you're right back to making measurements again. Okay? So, there's the first one. <laughs> and then you moved on. What was the second part? Was it? Um, why are we so afraid? Uh, oh, relaxation. Yeah. Losing the relaxation and letting every, all attachments go. Is it uh, a fundamental fear mm -hmm. of uh, losing uh, or I ceasing understand. to exist? Yeah. yeah. You know, Descartes may have been pointing to that when he said, I think, therefore I am. I think means I do. I mean, that's, and, and even if it's I thinking means really I cognize the sense that I'm doing something. And then in Buddhist philosophy, the notion of, of the being of the I, kind of a reified I, being in control, not from Madhyamaka, but more, from a somewhat more primitive, more simple worldview called Satrantika, the Satrantika view within Buddhism. Um, they say, you know, what, it, what is this, this, af this afflictive cognition, if we're going to embrace that notion? What kind of a, a self does it grasp onto? And it's not that I think that I'm... I am my body or I am my mind, but it's rather that the various mental processes in my body and so forth that it's like an assembly, an assembly of components, of mental components, physical components, and among them, and here's the analogy given, it's like a, an assembly of merchants, and among them is the chief merchant, the CEO, and the CEO tells the other ones what to do. They might sometimes outbid him if you, have, you get drunk, if you have brain damage, then the, the other ones may outbid, you know, and he doesn't get to speak, he or she. But the sense of, yes, I'm here, I, this person here, I'm here in the midst of my body and mind, and I'm in charge of them. When I say hand go up, it goes up. Hand go down, go down. Attend to the breath. Okay, I did. How long I can do it, that's an open question, but I did. And so somebody's in charge here, and that's me. But now when we release, and you saw the words coming up with respect to the breath, and so, and then we go more into the core, settling the mind is natural state. Now we're releasing control over the mind. Then we go into awareness of awareness. We're not only releasing control, we're releasing it entirely. I mean, really, just letting go of the mind altogether. Then that whole sense of having a sense of existential security, that after all, I am here. I'm not dead yet. I'm still in charge. I'm still in control. That's being challenged. It's being challenged. It's severely challenged with a very sharp knife in Vipassana. That's where you're really cutting the root. But this is the very cunning strategy in Buddhism. Is when the mental afflictions are very strong. The five obscurations are fully active. Ill will, sensual craving, excitation and anxiety, laxity and dullness and uncertainty. When they're really romping about, fully active, and the other mental afflictions as well, and bearing in mind very much in that, that laxity and dullness, that laxity and excitation, really romping about, really full strength, to try to introduce Vipassana into that mess, into that noisy, chaotic room with food fights and all kinds of stuff going on, and get this sharp knife of Vipassana to come through there, and to cut the root of this grasping onto self, going to be difficult, 
even if you get some glimpses, it's going to be overwhelmed really quickly. And that's why people have glimpses and that cover, the cloud, clouds cover over again. And they have this really cool memory that gradually fades from time. Five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I had this really cool experience. But ever since then, it's been food fights in my mind. It can be a little bit discouraging. So this is why this strategy, the classic strategy from the Buddha that he explained with metaphor, a parable, and so forth and so on, is first subdue. First subdue by way of ethics. Subdue unwholesome thoughts, patterns, and so forth, just by the way you're behaving, mental activity, intention. Subdue that. That's ethics. And don't reinforce them with unwholesome speech. Don't reinforce them with unwholesome physical behavior. So lay a foundation in your whole way of life that's not going to be aggravating, activating those mental afflictions. And for the monk, keeping the, keeping the eyes down, the mind very subdued, the mind very controlled, and not attending to things that are likely to arouse and open the wounds of craving and hostility. So for the monk who has this as a full-time job, monk or nun, then really it's, you're never off-duty. At all times, you're doing your whole best with the, the way you're guarding your senses. Don't go there. Don't go attending to things that just, just open up the wounds of anger, resentment, hatred, hostility, craving, desire, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I just saw an incredibly charming s snippet of an uh, interview between Piers Morgan, who's, to my mind, a very good interviewer, it's my opinion. Uh, and he was interviewing the Dalai Lama just about a week ago. And uh, I'll just, I just saw very short clips, but one, one clip. Piers Morgan asked the Dalai Lama, I've never heard anybody ask the Dalai Lama this before, and I've heard a lot of interviews. He said, do you still feel sexual attraction? Here he is, 76 years old, right? Do you, do you feel sexual attraction? Beautiful woman, do you feel attraction? His answer was, of course. <laughs> Some, and I, I'm going to try to mimic a little bit, just because it's fun. Said, Sometimes I look very nice. <laughs> and then I think, very complicated. <laughs> and kind of dirty business. And so then I, I move away. And then he says, sometimes in my dreams also, I see beautiful women. And then I think, I never think, he said, I never think in my dreams, I am Dalai Lama. Quite interesting. Never, that's what he said. It's easy to Google it. He said, but I think I am monk in my dreams. I am monk. Then, don't do. So, there's a monk. He's the monk's monk. I've known a number of monks' monks, but he is really quintessential monk. Had a lot of experience. Been like a monk for like since he was three. That's a lot of experience. Um, but always guarding, always guarding the senses, right? So it's a full-time job. And then with shamatha, with shamatha, with with the development of jhana. I mean, that's the more common term in the Pali Canon. Although the shamatha is the method, and the jhana is what you then accomplish access to the first jhana and so forth. With that, those five obscurations, including the craving, not the appreciation. Oh, isn't she a beautiful woman? Yeah, she is a beautiful woman. If you don't see that, there's something wrong with your eyesight. There are beautiful women, not so beautiful women, and then etc. <laughs> but to see a beautiful woman as a beautiful woman, is, that's just having good eyesight. Just like seeing a beautiful mountain or beautiful sunset. If you can't see it, you're aesthetically impaired. In fact, I think in the Pali Canon, there's a statement someplace 
where the Buddha said there's nothing quite so attractive as a beautiful woman, at least to men. And I, I'm one. I think he's right. This in terms of, whoa, a really extravagantly beautiful woman. Hard to match. Hard to match. But that doesn't mean one has to feel craving or lust. It's just, wow, beautiful. Really beautiful. So having said that, I'm going to finish up here. Um, the practice of jhana, the practice of samadhi, practice of shamatha, is designed to subdue them, not to eradicate. So the craving isn't there. The grasping, the attachment isn't there. The appreciation, the enjoyment still can be. Right? And likewise for ill will, and for the other ones as well. And so you subdued them. It's almost like you gave them, now, now we'll flip it, it's almost as if you gave them Alzheimer's. So now your craving is like, I'm, I'm, and no reference, I have, I'll never make fun of, I think I've never made fun of Alzheimer's, I'm not starting now, but it's like you're, but, I have, but I'll be a mental affliction, I'll, I'll roll like that, like craving, like, what hit me? And what hit you was shamatha. Uh, uh, uh. You know, they're really knocked out. They, they're not dead. They're not eradicated, but they're really disempowered. And that's when the vipassana can come in and do the, really heavy, the heavy lifting and really do the work irreversibly. Okay? So does that answer? Okay, good. Oh, yeah, that was long. But, it was, but how could it not be? At least it wasn't three volumes. Anything from the left side? Gudo has it. Um, I've often heard you mention the book, books by Jim Tucker and Ian Stevenson. Uh, I haven't read them. Yeah. Um, but from a Buddhist perspective, should there not be um, recollections of lives uh, lived in the hell realms, in yeah. the god realms, yeah. as the family dog mm-hmm. from other planets? Yeah. Um, and, and were there? <coughs> That's a very good question. As far as I know, and I've not read all their work, but they've done, they have been at it for 40 years. Ian Stevenson now having passed away, Jim Tucker, a uh, rather young man, maybe not much older than you. Uh, maybe he's 40. Uh, it's quite, still quite young from my perspective. Um, I've, never, I've never encountered, and I've spoken with him, I've never encountered any of their uh, research identifying a child who remembers a life as anything other than human. I don't remember. Now, do you find that, you find that in Pythagoras? I've been reading up in Pythagoras just recently because I'd love to see a contemplative observatory in Greece, so I'm doing some liaisoning there. Uh, but Pythagoras, who has said, I just learned this recently, among all of the early Greek philosophers, and he, and he was a contemporary of the Buddha born just six years earlier than the Buddha. So they were really, and they've lived about the same period of time, so they were really contemporaries. Uh, but among, among all these early Greek philosophers, uh, from what I've read from a pretty good source now, I did check it out, is that he was the one in the very earliest days, I mean, within, he never wrote anything that we know of, but 100 years, 200 years after, then more and more writings about him, that what he was considered to be, what it was his, for, his fort, his great strength, uh, they didn't p- posit mathematics. They posit he's the man who really knows what's going on with the soul. He was, and not just because he was brilliant and had come really cool ideas, that he actually could recall his past lives, multiple ones, and on one occasion, this is quite an early reference, that he saw somebody, I think, what was it, kicking a dog. And he says, please stop. Stop kicking that dog. That's an incarnation of a friend of mine. And so it was part of his belief, it's quite certain, part of his belief that human beings took birth as, could be, took birth as animals. Yeah. Um, so, enough of ancient history. So, 
No, no accounts that I know of, uh, of just children sporadically around the world cropping up and then start talking about past lives. So if they did have anything other, number one, if it's veridical at all, and it's not just fantasy, and these are naive researchers, and somehow they didn't figure this out. If they are, have been sophisticated, the data is, is hard data, uh, then why not? And that's your question. Uh, so then I'll enter into informed speculation, which means I could be totally wrong. But I think what I've said thus far is correct. I no data. Uh, whereas Dupang Rinpoche, this old yogi who said, I can remember all my past lives, he said, oh, most of them were in the lower realms. Most of them were in the lower realms. That's what he said about his own. But he got there by way of samadhi, deep insight, high, re high realization, and not these kids who are getting it karmically. But uh, from a Buddhist perspective, what else do you say? Well, if in doubt, then just say karma. You know, and that's what we do. Um, here's my speculation. For a child like that who has not broadened the bandwidth, let's say it's a boy, has not broadened the bandwidth of his awareness, as this Dupan Ramachi would have done, by tens of thousands of hours of very rigorous, intensive meditative training, that you know, he's realized clear light of death, he's realized Rikpa, he's realized the substrate, you know, he's got a big bandwidth. Okay? And so then he's tapping into this and able to recall these memories. Well, these little kids, they're just little kids. This is the only thing odd about them. They don't tend to be saintly. They're not great yogis. They don't necessarily show any interest in meditation. They just have these memories. Besides that, I think pretty, on the whole, they're pretty ordinary kids, right? Um, so clearly, as they are recalling these memories, they're recalling it with their coarse minds. They're not tapping into substrate consciousness and operating from that perspective, let alone tapping right down into Rikpa and tapping from that perspective. They're tapping into it directly from the perspective of a psyche, because that's the only thing they are activating right now. They're not yogis. And so whatever information is being processed, including images of the past, will be processed by their five-year-old brains, right? in their language, Hindi, English, whatever the language may be. right? And so for information, memories, that simply cannot be processed, that is, can we as human beings, and we as human beings, can we imagine what it's like to be a dog? I don't think so. Because it's being processed through a human brain, through human mind, human language. And as, when you're working on that, it's just like, these, these are ships passing in the night. So the data may be there, but you just can't get to it. Because this won't process. This will process human-like memories but not hell memories, the whole system might go into meltdown. You might die of a stroke. You might die of a heart attack. If you could, as a little child, vividly recall, let's imagine hell realms exist, and you could have that, you might go insane. It could be so overwhelming. People experiencing intense grief, sometimes it's just debilitating. PTSD is so debilitating, they can't function. Right? Uh, and so I suspect that's it, that they're working within that bandwidth, and the only memories they can pick up are human memories, and that translates. That's my, that's my speculation. Yeah. And the speculation would be that if one tapped into a deeper continuum like substrate consciousness with a lot of hard work, then you might be able to retrieve a broader variety. Because if we take this seriously, now maybe again, again, we'll want to be skeptical. Uh, Pythagoras, if he was just making this up. But the thing, he may, he may have, so there we go. But the interesting thing is for, for hundreds of years afterwards, that's what he was famous for. If he was just some silly speculator that was pretending, 
uh, maybe you could fool everybody, but these were fooling people like Socrates and Plato and so forth, not generally regarded as fools. Okay. Good, so we'll read one. We only have one more written, but it looks like, okay. Practice question. I haven't much traction. The last fortnight, I chopped and changed between the three practices and was fickle-minded about which one to focus on. This indecisiveness and little progress has given me an incentive to work harder on Sundays. As a result, I didn't hear the bell after one gatakana, but I got some traction with awareness of awareness around the 35-minute mark. Good. The next session, I got some traction again, but within 24 minutes. So the question is, shall I, uh, shall I continue to adjust my rev uptime? That's the first question. Sure, especially the first couple of days. Uh, first, I'm sorry, first couple of weeks in an eight-week retreat. That's very much a time for exper experimentation. Just you know, it's like going to a shoe store and trying on this this shoe and this size and so forth, and just see what fits. See what you can walk around in well. And it's a nice analogy. Get some traction. Uh, so that's not at all a fault. Not at all a fault, right? Uh, and moreover, some of you now that we're within a day of being halfway through this whole retreat. Some of you are still experimenting with on a regular basis, experimenting with, or let's just say practicing, all three methods. Some of you have a routine of moving through all of the three methods. Nothing wrong with that. I have no preference at all. That, that doesn't make me happy or sad. I'm just, if that's what works, good. I'm here to support you in that. And some of you are now really focusing on one and just touch lightly on one or two of the others, and that's fine. So, so in this case, uh, to experiment, sure. To get some traction is so important in at least one of the practices that you come out, hopefully in, in anticipation for weeks from now, with some confidence in at least one of the shamatha practices. And if it's the infirmary, that's good. That's something that's really making progress. To spend eight weeks and learn how to relax without getting dull-minded, that's pretty significant. If you've developed that skill and you can sustain it when you go back to work, family, and so forth and so on, that's really big be able to really be clear-minded, to be able to focus, and yet remain loose. Lots less wear and tear, right? <coughs> so for this, for awareness of awareness, sure, by all means, the short answer is yes. And one area you might really experiment with is balancing earth and sky. Earth and sky. Uh, let's just check here. Just wanted to see. Okay, so no answer, so I won't look, look at anyone in particular. But uh, earth and sky, and that is that awareness of awareness is just going to go smoother and smoother. You'll get that traction, you get that confidence when you're coming to it with a really deep sense of looseness and relaxation, which you've heard me say many times, and it's still true. If I focus chiefly on awareness of awareness practice, will I have a blockage of unprocessed emotions that subtly in the mind allows the opportunity to face and see opening? Very good question. And I think there's a definitive answer that's way beyond the opinion of one guy, like this one. Uh, I think it's really definitive, I mean conclusive. And that is um, that you will not have left some major work undone. If you move along those nine stages of shamatha in awareness of awareness, and, and there you are, you're just developing them, getting onto stage six, seven, eight, nine, and not having faced every demon every lust, every sadness, every emotion, every memory and so forth, not have faced, because you're like that, I like the metaphor from physics, you're like that neutrino, that neutrino that you know, travels very, very fast, has no charge, so it just goes right through a, like a mile of lead. 
A dendrito can go through a mile, if you had a mile wall of lead, a dendrito could go through all of it and never touch a single atom. It's kind of cool. I like it. Well, that's what you want to do with your glowing ember of your neutrino of awareness and just have it go shooting right through all the layers of the psyche and not touch anything. Just like, pew, what was that? And all your mental afflictions and memory, where did it go? I'm sure it was here. It's like one of those bullet trains. Was I imagining that? No, that was Rosario practicing awareness of awareness. <laughs> so that's the way it is. But now, why isn't that avoidance? Why isn't that some kind of delusional escapism, that you're not facing all your neuroses and your repressed emotions and your sad memories and your angers and your fears and so forth? Hey, that sounds a bit too easy to me. Why, are, why isn't that just an awful lot of major baggage waiting to beat you over the head later on? And number one, that's just the way it is. I mean, whether or not you have an explanation for it, People have been accomplishing shamatha for hundreds and hundreds of years, practicing awareness of awareness. It traces back to the Buddha himself, and it worked. So you don't have to believe what I'm saying, but I will say this is true. And so if there were some major problem of focusing on awareness of awareness as a shamatha practice, that later on you just get beaten silly by all those emotions and so forth that you did not confront, then people would have figured that one out a long time ago. And they would say, okay, do awareness of awareness, but make sure you do all this because, boy, that will get you in deep trouble. But they don't say that, right? And so then if we imagine that, in fact, these accounts for centuries upon centuries, first India, then Tibet, and who knows well, where elsewhere, that these are veridical, then we can ask, okay, why? How, in terms of modern psychology, we can say, but you, know, you really should face your demons, face the shadow side. And these are not foolish people saying this. We have intelligent people on both sides. Uh, but there is a factor that I've not seen. So I'm now just expressing my ignorance and nothing more. But I've not seen much emphasis. In fact, I've never seen any emphasis uh, in clinical psychological literature of really developing a theory of the natural healing capacity of the mind. That the mind is somehow by nature pristine. It's pure. It's unblemished. It's not afflicted and just get out of the way. And that radiant healthiness, the clear luminosity of your own awareness will rise up and it will heal the problems of your mind. It may be there. It may be there in transpersonal psychology because I know some people in transpersonal psychology are also clinicians. So I'm not saying it's not there. I've just not seen it. Um, let alone when one simply identifies mental diseases with brain disorders, then you really have, there's, then there is no notion of somehow the mind being having an extraordinary capacity to heal itself. Um, but in Buddhism, it runs through all the schools. In the Theravada tradition, this, it's called in Pali, pabasa, pabasa, sometimes called brightly shining mind, which is identified as the bhavanga, which we call the substrate consciousness. That same, same term, pabasa, in Pali is prabasa, prabasha, prabasha. In Sanskrit, it's ursel in Tibetan. And that's the word we standardly translate as clear light. Clear light, brightly shining mind. So that's interesting. In the Indo-Tibetan tradition, and but also in the Prajnaparamita, in the Prajnaparamita literature. Now this is not Vajrayana. Then once again, the nature of the mind is said to be prabasha, brightly shining, clear, radiant, luminous by nature. 
So it runs through the Pali Canon, it runs through the Prajnapanamita, and of course it saturates all of Vajrayana, and it's the very essence of Dzogchen. But it is interesting that in the Theravada tradition, in the Pali Canon, there are no references to Buddha nature. Nowhere to be found, right? So they need to find a referent for this brightly shining mind. Well, they're not going to point to the Buddha nature because it's not there. So they're going to point to the clearest dimension that is, has been identified within that tradition, and that's Bhavanga. And that, they say, is adventitiously covered with obscurations, but they add, the obscurations come and go. But by nature, this brightly shining mind is not obscured, defiled in its own nature. It's just covered over. So there's on the relative level. Go over to Dzogchen, or the teachings on Buddha nature, Uttara Tantra, and so forth. And then once again, this, we're not referring just to substrate consciousness, but to deepest level. So there's the answer, though. And that is whether on the substrate level, let alone Buddha nature level, if what you're dealing with there is something that is by nature pure, undefiled, unobscured, then if you're making a beeline for that, and you're realizing that, then it's like digging a deep well and then just finding this pure water flowing up and saturating everything on the surface. That you're tapping into the very core of the healing capacity of your own mind, which by nature is pure. And that comes up and just erupts spontaneously and purifies. And therefore there's nothing left over. So your mind is no, no more or less pure if you've achieved shamatha by way of awareness of awareness versus settling the mind. It's either free of the obscurations, the five obscurations, or not. But whether it's by mindfulness of breathing, awareness of awareness, settling the mind, or some other method, if you've achieved access to the first jhana, shamatha, you're free of the five obscurations temporarily. They're, they're, again, they're dopey, they're disempowered, they're kind of dormant. Very important question, very important, okay? And then, this is a whole series of them, but they're practice-related, so let's just go ahead and stay here. Oh yeah, does the awareness of awareness, does the oscillations, do these allow these emotions to be processed in a more subtle way so the backlog is cleared in a quieter, deeper manner? My suspicion is no, that that's, that's not what's doing it. Uh, it's, it's a little bit like, um, it's often said, that cleansing the mind is like taking, having one of those old washboards, they probably have in multiple civilizations, they must have had it in India, an old washboard down by the river, and you go, oh, 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 the, the dirty cloth, and you keep on going, going, going until the stain is removed. But that's in and out, in and out, in and out. Okay? So what's the in and out motion here? This is classic Mahayana teachings. And the in and out, in and out motion is that if you gain direct realization of emptiness, let's say as a bodhisattva, which makes you an Arya bodhisattva, then you still have all of your innate mental afflictions to be purified. The conate ones, the ones you're born with. You're now free of all the mental afflictions that you acquired. So you got, you got, you now you enter the dry cleaners for that one. You're free and irreversibly free of those. But you have the, the conate or innate mental afflictions, the kleshas. And so how do you purify those as you go from, from, this, from the first bumi to the second, right on through up to the eighth? And the core teaching here is it's in and out, in and out, in and out. And they give this analogy, is you go in and you saturate your mind in your realization of emptiness. And then you come out and you activate bodhicitta. Spontaneously you arouse bodhicitta and you engage in the bodhisattva way of life. All six, six perfections. Right? And then there you are. You're, you are bodhisattva and you're an active bodhisattva, an active duty. And then after you've then done that for a while, then you breathe in and you go right back to realization of emptiness. And then you come out, and it's an in-and-out motion that purifies the mind of its mental afflictions. So that's classic. That's classic teachings. 
But here, Tsongkhapa, for example, let's come back to him. When he teaches this practice, so what's the practice? What's, what's Tsongkhapa's thumbnail sketch of this practice? What do you do, anybody? Awareness of awareness. What's the one-line explanation of the entire practice? It's good to remember. Nobody remembers? I said it maybe a half dozen times by now. Yeah, J- James, carry on. Rest in the shear. And? You got 50%. And that's good. That's better than 0%. So rest in the sheer luminosity and? Say, say again. Yeah, knowing is fine. Sheer cognizance. You're taking those two phenomenological characteristics, salient characteristics of consciousness. Cogni- uh, cognizance, knowing. That's just a fancier word, but you, ha- you have it right. And then luminosity. Those are the two defining characteristics that separates consciousness from everything that's not consciousness. Consciousness by its very nature is clear and it's knowing. Yeah? And so you're just, so what is the awareness of awareness? Just rest in the sheer luminosity and the sheer cognizance of awareness. Class over. There's your meditation rooms. Bye. There's nothing more, right? So there's no oscillation. And, and oh, Kamachamaramuchi, he teaches about this extensively, this practice. No reference to oscillation. Okay? Now these are formidable teachers. So that, that clearly implies, and none of this business either, up and down and right and calisthenics, and there's none of that either. That's Padmasambhava. Very cool, but not indispensable, right? So what's indispensable? And the Buddha himself, when he calls Vinyana Kasina, focusing on consciousness itself, there is later on a sense of expanding the emblem, expanding the space of awareness. That is there. But I don't recall anything of oscillation. So the oscillation is a very skillful means. Very, very skillful means. But what is it a skillful means to do? To overcome laxity and excitation. That's what it's there for. Now that covers two out of five of the, of the obscurations. Because one of them is laxity and dullness. You're overcoming that by that, that arousal, that intensification, unification, concentration, focusing right in upon the raw, unmediated experience of awareness, or probing even more deeply into the agent, into the observer. Right? But the point of that really is to really sharpen up and overcome laxity. And then when you go for that deep release, that relaxation, that letting go, that of course is a let, let go of all the energy behind excitation. But that's it. But there's nothing there for dealing with sensual craving, ill will, uncertainty, and let alone envy and pride and so forth and so on. There's, there's nothing there. And so coming back to the same, same point, practice this one. It's gonna, you're going to get the healing, the balancing, right from the core, rather than letting each one come up and letting it be processed in the space of the mind and dissolving and watching the whole show. She's going right to the core. And the core is like a medicine flowing up from beneath and then just healing the whole system. It's very optimistic. It's a lovely hypothesis to be put to the test of experience. Then does this generally equate to less intense, uh, does this generally equate to less intense ruminations? Uh, sure. If you're, if you're just, if you're just not even paying any attention to them, like one comes up, and it's, if, you're talk, if you were to talk to it, whatever it is, whether it's something gorgeous, something terrifying, something disgusting, something awful, whatever it is, it would be as if you're saying, Whatever you're offering, I'm bored stiff. 
I have zero interest. It'd be like if a cosmetic salesman came to my door. <laughs> I don't care how good it is. I'm happy for my face to get wrinkly and just kind of get old and spotty and then die. That's what I call getting old. So take it somebody who cares. <laughs> I don't care whether you're giving free samples. I just, I just don't care. So you don't need to open the box, thank you, but there might be somebody next door. It's that kind of total indifference that you don't have to process them. You just show total lack of interest. And once again, I'm going to bring up my mantra. For the moment, what you attend to is reality. If you're just refusing to attend to, but it's not just going, hear no evil, see no evil, and so forth, you are attending to something. And if you're not, then you're not doing the practice. You are attending to something. The, the luminous and cognizant nature of awareness, which by nature is pure, that's what you're attending to. So, <laughs> pardon me, but you know, when all this stuff is coming up, you ready for something really schmaltzy, really cheesy, like you're going to slap your forehead? When all the junk is coming up, the response from awareness awareness is, look on the bright side. The bright side is awareness itself. You know, what's brighter than awareness? It's the source of all illumination in the universe. There's no brightness out there if there's no consciousness in the universe. And so there it is. Accentuate the positive. Rather than getting caught up in any of the negative or the objective positive, just get caught up in the positive, the sheer, pure luminosity of your own awareness. That's pretty positive. And let it do its work. So again, it's a beautiful message. And yeah, ruminations will be... Um, they will definitely be less intense. It's just like, you're not paying attention to me. If we anthropomorphize them, at least I, I thought at least I could piss you off or make you bored or make you unhappy or frustrated. I thought, I thought I'd be good at that. But you're totally ignoring me. If you want to know how to hurt my feelings, that's how you do it. You're just not letting me in at all, like that poor cosmetic salesman. Oh, there you are. Looks like final one. Can you provide elaborations on what awareness of awareness feels like at stage one, two, three to assist with in-between sessions assessment, possibly compare with settling the mind to help with the distinctions? Okay. It's easier. I don't mean it's, I don't mean it's easier as in it's easier to do. It's easier to talk about. Um, because the most nuanced of the practices we're engaging in, I don't even mean most subtle, the most nuanced, I think is the word, is the settling the mind. Because we have this smooth gradient of grasping. When you're attending to the thoughts, images, and so forth coming up, if a thought goes on for a while, might that be grasping? Maybe, but not necessarily. If a thought comes up, some nasty thought, some unpleasant image, but it vanishes quickly, could that be because of grasping, grasping aversion, I don't like it? Yes, but not necessarily. If you're attending and nothing's coming up, could that be because you're too intense, you're focusing too much grasping of focusing? Yes, but not necessarily. So it's nuanced. And that's because we don't just have yes or no of grasping, we have how much. And we can't simply decide to stop grasping and then not do it at all, right? 
any more than, oh, and I'll just add a footnote to Regina's point. Uh, and this is fascinating. It's from Genlam Rimba, one of the most accomplished yogis I've ever met. Decades of practicing meditating in emptiness. Right? And he made this comment. Maybe I referred to it before. But he says, as a yogi, when you're meditating on emptiness and you gain some realization of emptiness and conceptualization totally stops, isn't subdued, totally stops. It's subdued when you rest in the substrate consciousness, but it's not totally stopped. It's there on a subliminal level, a really micro level, a non-disturbing level. But gain direct realization of emptiness and conceptual designation, thought just goes zero, flatlined. What's it like? The whole world vanishes for you. Eyes open, ears open, the whole world vanishes for you. You are in the center of your mandala. In the center of your mandala, there is no suffering, there's no source of suffering, there's no cessation, and there's no path. There's no five skandhas, there are no 18 elements. We're dealing with the Heart Sutra here. From your perspective, they've all vanished. They aren't there. Now, of course, for your next door neighbor who's cooking some potatoes, they're there. But from your perspective, but now consider this, that there it is, you've rebooted all of reality. Reboots mean it's temporarily just turned off, right? There's just nothing on the screen. And in a very deep core way, you've re rebooted the whole of your mandala. As in Om Svabhava Shuddha Savadama, Svabhava Shuddha Ham, the big mantra at the beginning of so many sadhanas. Right? Om Svabhava Shuddha Savadama. All phenomena are pure by nature. Svabhava Shuddha Ham, I am that pure nature. So the first half is the emptiness of all phenomena, and the second half is I am Buddha nature. I am Dharmakaya. And the two are non-dual. Dhammadhatu, Dharmakaya. One nature, I am. You dissolve all phenomena to emptiness by realizing emptiness, and if you're really practicing and you're fully qualified, then you gain that, you start having taken refuge, develop bodhicitta. You go into this realization of emptiness. And you, from your perspective, you being in the center of the mandala, you dissolve all phenomena and emptiness. And it's not because you've withdrawn into the substrate consciousness or the form realm or the formless realm. It's you've actually are attending the whole of reality without conceptual designation, and it's gone and for a very different reason. Not withdrawal, but through insight. Oh. So you've just dissolved the entire universe that arises with respect to you. This again, this entanglement of epistemology and ontology. For you now, there is no, four noble truths don't exist. The very framework of all of the Buddhist teachings do not exist for you. They don't. No conceptual designation. And it's not, of course, it's not Alzheimer's, it's not dementia, it's not vegetative. You are, you couldn't be more brightly aware but all conceptual designation has ceased. Therefore, for you, there is nothing arising independent upon conceptual designation. Con conceptual, de conceptual designation has been wound back, but not only through a grasp, a cessation of grasping, but through direct insight into the absence of inherent nature. Grasping may stop just by taking heavy anesthesia, but this is not anesthesia. And then out of that, not implosion. It's not like you're sucking all the appearances in to your substrate, which is what you are doing in Jamata. It's a temporary, it's a retreat. This is an expedition, venturing out to all phenomena, seeing their empty nature, and they all, they're not sucked in anywhere. They just vanish right where they are. 
and you're not resting in the substrate, you're resting in dharmadhatu. You've gone ultimate. And then out of that nature, out of your own nature as dharmakaya, non-dual from dharmadhatu, Buddha mind, non-dual from the absolute space of phenomena, now you arise with the mandala. Your body is the body of the deity, yourself as the deity. And that is true for you. And outside, you'll appear like Dupanamache. Kind of a grubby old monk. Kind of a little bit of beard. A bit chubby. Nothing very special. He looks like he could be a homeless man. And he looks into the camera and says, I suppose I look human to you from the outside. <laughs> but inside, it's very different. And it relates to Gudo's question. Oh, yeah? Explain it to me. Good luck with that. (laughs) You can't imagine being a dog? How much less can you imagine being me? Forget it. At least you've been a dog in your past lives. You've never been me in your past lives. You have no data bank to imagine who I am. And I'm not speaking Alan Wallace. Just think of a smart dog. You pretty well nailed Alan Wallace. But Dupont Ramachay, forget about it. we are. I hope that's satisfactory. I did my best. Then I can leave with no regret. Have a good night. Have a good dinner.